it's interesting having Disney Plus. You go back and you watch a lot of stuff that you grew up watching. You realize how much Disney has permeated youth for generations. Because mm-hmm. uh, like, oh man, this is a Disney movie. This is a Disney movie. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. So you know, it's just it's interesting times where you do necessarily have a lot more free time at home to be able to watch movies and streaming services just seem to keep popping up left and right. It's insane. I got to get better about letterbox. It is insane. And I, I, I keep trying to like tackle my lists on all the things I've, I've been trying to read more. So I'm reading like a couple mm-hmm. chapters a day if I can manage it. Yeah. I finally picked up my guitar again and I'm trying to figure out the whole guitar thing. I'm watching movies I'm playing video games. It's like whatever <laughs> I can squeeze in now that I'm, living by myself and been largely just quarantined all the time (laughs) yeah 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 that's that's not quite as easy i mean we just have a different spectrum with having four kids at home they're going a little stir crazy (laughs) it's very rare when they're gone but they're with grandma and grandpa so that's still nice that we're able to do that in the middle of summer as a tradition that the kids leave for a week Mm -hmm. and uh it just would be nice to just kind of be able to go wherever but you just can't yeah Oh, well. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinescope. We are on episode 94. We're getting closer and closer to that episode 100 milestone. And I have on the show this week a new guest on the show, Joshua Crabb, who I've been trying to get on the show for a couple of years at this point, and I'm glad to finally have you. Josh, how's it going? <laughs> it's it's going well. It, it's not like you were begging me or anything. No. You know, it, it, you very much made the intro sound like you've been trying very, very hard, but our people just haven't been able to connect right. or something like that. <laughs> no, it's like drop a message, stare at our schedules for a little bit, see if we can work it out. It yeah. kind of just to the side as we work on our other individual projects and then oh, yeah. we bring it up again and oh no, it's still not a good time. Okay, that's fine. But uh, now that we've been confined to our homes for many months and... <laughs> We just, we were able to work it out. So I'm glad we were. Now we've already been chatting a little bit and some of Mm -hmm. the people will hear a little bit of that, but uh, how about you introduce yourself and what you may be known for and uh, just talk about you for a moment. Wow. Known for makes me sound all important. (laughs) You are. Well, (laughs) as you might be most familiar with, uh, Chad, you've been on Home One Radio, the Star Wars podcast that I co-host with Blaine Grimes, who is... I'm, it's been a guest on this show, I could say with certainty almost. Yes. <laughs> Good. Okay. I was going to be like, he had to have been on this show. I can't remember what episode is, just like you had to remind me about other people who have been on this show and talked about really important stuff. So, anywho, so I do a Star Wars podcast with Blaine that I'm actually, we had very, very difficult time over COVID 19 with his job and my job specifically, which was turned from working in an elementary school to virtually schooling my four kids at home while my wife worked until she was laid off through through COVID stuff. But Blaine had the much more difficult job of manning a university department during a transition of 9,000 students from in-class learning to virtual learning. Mm -hmm. And so we went on quite a long hiatus and, uh, Now we're finally back, but I have my fellow Real World staffer, David Atwell, covering for Blaine until later this month in August. 
So anyways, we are we are back and talking about stuff because also we started getting books and stuff like that sent to us by like Lucasfilm Press and Delray and stuff like that. Again, it's like, oh, we should probably, you know, get back on the train and not lose the the wonderful bit of goodwill that we've built up with Star Wars creators and make sure that we review these books before they come out. That's exciting. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, I, I'm i glad that we're still on that. I feel like there's so many things that could have fallen by the wayside in all of this, but they still, you know, are. we're very excited soon. Uh, we should be getting physical copies of the new Thrawn trilogy that is starting mm. up soon and be able to talk about that before it even comes out. So I'm kind of excited about that because we both, Blaine and our unapologetic Thrawn fans, so there's that. As I mentioned, real world theology. I have been a writer and podcaster. I host a podcast that Blaine started on Real World, and I took over for him. Real World Rewind, and also the most recent episode that I did. I did the main episode for the first time because uh, Mikey couldn't do it, and David Atwell and myself. We did an episode on a friend of Real World and someone you might know, Reed Lackey. Mm-hmm. So he hosts uh, Fear of God with Nathan Rouse. Uh, Reed actually wrote a movie, which is about the uh, temptation of Christ in the desert, called 40, The Temptation of Christ. And uh, so we talked about that movie and published an interview that we did with Reed. And that's kind of like the newest thing that's going on at Real World right now. And so there's Real World. And then also recently, I started a podcast with my wife. Uh, which is called the Tone It Down podcast, where it's kind of comedy slash advice slash funny rants that the two of us have started. So that's actually a very new project that my wa- I finally convinced my wife to do a podcast with me after about four years of asking. So I'm very excited about that because she's smart and funny and she makes fun of me in a very fun and exciting <laughs> way. And my natural disposition is to be very self-deprecating. And so I can take her her barbs with good nature. Well, that's exciting to have a new project. I I mentioned this last week with TJ. The curse of podcasting is you always want to do more podcasting. Oh, yeah. We're going to go ahead and transition into talking about our movie. Uh, You picked Starship Troopers, which is a movie I had never seen before. So I'm excited to talk with you about it and uh, delve into things. Yes. Uh, This movie released on November 7th of 1997 was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who also directed RoboCop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, and Hollow Man. He's really mostly known for just those first two and this one, I think. Yeah. The screenplay was written by Edward Neumeyer, Neumeyer. I don't know exactly how that's pronounced, but yeah. it was based on the book Starship Troopers by Robert A. Heinlein. Heinlein. There's a lot of weird names in this one. (laughs) (laughs) The music is by Basil Polidorus, who also composed the scores for Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, Red Dawn, Robocop, The Hunt for Red October, White Fang, Free Willy, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, and then the 1998 version of Les Miserables, which was not a musical. (laughs) Oh, interesting. I don't think it was. I think it's that's the one with like Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. And this movie stars a relatively unknown cast, except for one or two standouts. There's Mm -hmm. Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, Denise Richards, Jake Busey, uh, who's the spitting image of his father. No kidding. (laughs) Neil Patrick Harris, Patrick Muldoon, and Michael Ironside. Mm -hmm. One uh, cast member that you didn't have on here that I think is very important to mention is Clancy Brown as uh, Zim. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. drill sergeant. Uh, He is just, I love Clancy Brown so much. And he's been a great voice actor and actor over the years, and I really like his role in this movie. I 
jumped a little bit ahead. I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that because he'll be a character that I talk about. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I made this list before I'd seen the movie, and so I didn't know who all to include. So I'm glad you oh, okay. shouted him out. Yeah. Uh, oh, voice of Mr. Krabs. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew I recognized the name from somewhere. Something I deal with all the time. That's basically what my elementary school kids call me is Mr. <laughs> Krabs and, or SpongeBob. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've just, I've leaned into that because I don't have a choice because it's just right. my last name practically. Because yeah. <laughs> they'll be like, your last name is Krabs. I'm like, no, it's Crab. Then why do they call you that? Because they do. They're kids. <laughs> well, we always start off talking about our first experience with these movies, mm-hmm. and I'll let you go first because your story is probably more interesting than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, considering you said this is the first time you'd ever seen it. Yeah, I mean, I saw this. Crazily enough is I know that I saw this movie in the theaters, and I think I was probably a freshman in high school or an eighth grader, and I have no idea how I saw this movie in the movie theater. The only thing I could possibly think is I know that my best friend growing up, his dad, would super be okay with going to rated R movies with us and not screen them very well beforehand or like look into them at all. He'd just go with us. Funnily enough, you know, he's a very smart man. He's the anesthesiologist at a major hospital in Milwaukee and does surgery for like the bucks and stuff like that. But he uh, is not maybe not the best at screening it before taking a bunch of teenage boys to go see a movie that is very much a movie that would cater to teenage boys. So somehow I saw this movie in 1997 in the theaters, and I just remember loving this movie so much for probably all the wrong reasons when I was a teenager. <laughs> I mean, the one of the reasons was is basically you walked out of this movie and you're like, yeah, it's StarCraft the movie. It's basically the closest thing you can get to a StarCraft basically uh-huh. put into a movie without actually making a movie from Blizzard Entertainment called StarCraft. Because obviously the bugs are very, very much uh, seem a lot like the Zerg. And so it's something that we loved when I was a teenage kid. I just remember loving this movie so much. But and I've, I've seen it off and on over the years. I didn't like I didn't get obsessed with this movie. I was a Star Wars fan. So first and foremost, I was a Star Wars geek. So I obsessed about that movie. And my dad was a huge Star Trek fan. So uh, a lot of the time that I spent in high school, I was watching Star Wars movies or watching Star Trek movies with my dad. Mm-hmm. And so this movie is kind of, you know, further down the rung and, you know, you go through it and you're like, oh, this is a really cool movie with lots of blood and guts and shooting and all this kind of stuff. And Denise Richards. So when you're a 14 year old boy, you're like, hooray for Denise Richards. She's so attractive and beautiful. <laughs> but as I got older, I, I would come back to this movie in a fond way. And I think it's when I saw this movie again is when I really started to appreciate it more. But that first experience was kind of hooked me. And then later on, I think with like a lot of people, we reassessed the movie and loved it even more. Well, this movie is billed as a, or not billed as, it, it's a satire, which yes. is something that I was really obvious to me. I mean, it's probably obvious to a lot of people, uh, maybe not as obvious to a teenager when you first saw it. I don't nope. know. No, it's not. <laughs> no. It, it, I like mean, guts and bugs blowing up. Yeah. And it really is. And I think it, it, attracted a lot of negative criticism on that front except for the people that saw through it uh, mm-hmm. and were able to see it that way and and Verhoeven was very very explicit about the fact that it was a satire and you know it was a, it was essentially a commentary on Heinlein's novel which was you know that he would say was hawkish and very base 
of a novel. Uh, in fact, I think he commented at one point, I'm not sure if it was during the commentary or just like anecdotally during interviews, he said the book is not very good. He read the first couple of chapters and got super bored and hated it. And he he just liked the screenplay a lot more, which was a playoff of Heinlein's novel. So I don't want to jump too far ahead if because I want to be able to hear what you know your initial impressions were on seeing it for the first time. So it was my first time. A lot of times with movies that you haven't seen before, especially like pre two thousand stuff that was out either before I was born or that when I was growing up, you hear about them, you know things about them. That was not the case with this movie with me at all. I mean, I basically went to Wikipedia to type in information. It says at the beginning, it's a nineteen ninety seven American satirical military science fiction action film, and that was basically all I knew. Huh. I didn't know anything. I, I there's nothing like even watching the movie now. There's nothing where I'm like, oh, that's what that was from. No, I didn't know anything. <laughs> So it was an interesting experience for me, especially knowing that it was a satire going in. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, it kind of gave me Ender's Game vibes. I don't know if you've ever read Ender's Game or watched the film that came out a few years ago with Asa Butterfield. But that the whole gist of that book is it's like kids who are being trained or prepared to fight a bug army that poses a threat to Earth. Mm. I won't say anything more beyond that if you aren't familiar with it, but that was the initial vibe it sort of gave me, and it quickly moved on from that. The creature effects and the blood and guts, I don't know if I was expecting that as much. I'm not usually a huge fan of that, but I mean, it works really well here. And I thought the CGI even held up pretty well for a 1997 movie. Mm -hmm. It's not like outstanding, but pretty good. But I liked it. We'll talk more about story stuff here in a minute and then character stuff, but I liked the movie, especially knowing that it was a satire and walking away with, okay, yeah, they're they're being pretty heavy handed in some ways with the satire here. Yeah, which is funny because I, I think that maybe my first viewing and affection for the movie to a certain extent blinds me a little bit to the heavy handedness. So I find myself having to be like, okay, I mean, it's there, obviously the opening moment of the film is essentially a riff on Riefenstahl's uh, Triumph of the Will when it, you know, it shows the big wide shot of all of the soldiers lined up, all the Federation soldiers lined up trying to recruit people. That's very much a, a Riefenstahl. And even just the Federation logo itself, it starts, you know, it's kind of the Iron Eagle sort of logo and everything. It's Verhoeven making it pretty clear what the movie's about if you can't figure it out, but then also knowing Verhoeven as a filmmaker and as a human being, you kind of know that clearly he's not going to put a lot of stock in fascism (laughs) and militarism, given the fact that he lived in Nazi-occupied Holland when he was a boy. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious what he's doing from the get-go. Yeah, I found a quote from him where he was basically summing up what the movie was about, which was, war makes fascists of us all. That first opening scene before we meet any main characters is I mean, it's a propaganda war film. Uh, do your part and you get to be a citizen of the, of the United States or of the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when I rewound the movie to catch some of the opening narration while I was writing my notes, mm-hmm. I realized that that opening film, we see the filming of it later in the film. Right. Which is pretty cool because I, I made a comment on it when we were first watching that scene later in the movie the news anchor or whoever whose boots on the ground Mm -hmm. recording about this war that's going on, he gets eaten and the cameraman just stands there and continues filming. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, that's what we got at the beginning of the movie. And we, we see our characters there and then we cut back to a year before. 
Now, when I say heavy handed, I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism. It was just, I didn't understand how the critics of the 90s or people of the late 90s who were of age to understand something like that didn't. Because it doesn't necessarily have like the greatest critical approval rating. Roger Ebert, I think I was saying, gave it a pretty poor review. Yeah. Because Roger Ebert famously gave lots of violent things pretty bad reviews, but mm-hmm. that's beside the point. Yeah, and this certainly has the Verhoeven stamp on it of grotesque violence and just grotesque use of practical effects. Mm-hmm. I just I think of the uh, when they're dissecting those bugs in uh, their classroom. Mm -hmm. It's just how gross and slimy it all is. It's just, it's so great. It it reminds me of like an 80s horror movie and just like the slimy grossness of it. It very much fits uh, Verhoeven's style and also includes Rue McClanahan, Blanche DeVroe from Golden Girls as the the (laughs) professor overseeing the autopsies or these uh, dissections, uh, which is pretty great. Yeah, that was something that stood out to me in the watching was how sort of commonplace or accepted just the the violence and the grossness of all of this was yeah as a society they seemed more progressive in some ways you know you had women on the football team you had women going for the pilot program and stuff that mm-hmm. maybe wasn't always a traditionally accepted practice yeah but then you see how desensitized they are to the violence of things you have the propaganda films themselves that are showing pretty violent carnage mm-hmm. then you also have the dissecting the giant bugs in the classroom you had the the propaganda films that showed the kids with guns and bullets and it was like let yeah let's get them in young and then you have the just the widely available violent videos in general that the, the way those films were presented it was like you were clicking through a website or something mm-hmm. and it was just oh there's no warning here necessarily they'll occasionally censor the worst things but really you're, you're seeing things as they are and that's okay because that's how you become a citizen is you go and you do your service for two years, then you come back and you get, you can vote. Hooray. Yeah. Which is actually, it's quite a horrendous thing. Just it's interesting because the movie's very much set up as like this sort of shiny veneer over all of these very troubling things. Like you think of Radchek's opening, not monologue, but sort of discourse with his students where he essentially says that you're fooling yourself. If you think that violence, isn't the answer. I'm not quoting directly, but that's essentially what he says is that all the great societies in the world, all the great cultures and everything like that have triumphed through violence. And it gives you pause because during the movie, you don't have a lot of time to necessarily pause. But afterwards, when thinking about it, you're like, first of all, that's troubling. But secondly, he is right in that sense. I mean, if you think about any major civilizations that have existed or major powers that have existed, they haven't done so in a peaceful manner. They haven't done anything where it's through just cultural influence. It's literally through conquest and violence and war. That's when you kind of know that the movies, it both has a, the people, the characters within the movie are very, very much embracing this troubling philosophy of how the world works. But then also it's kind of, it's functioning and reflecting it back on us towards afterwards, we can realize like, why did some of the things in this movie make me super uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it, it's all just dressed up. And I, I love the genius of Verhoeven in this movie just cause every, the, the thing is, is like the satire is somewhat subtle in ways that maybe like not everyone is going to pick up on, but you know, just even the casting of a bunch of kind of like young, very attractive people that worked in TV in different capacities and it kind of had the capacity to be or already were teen heartthrobs. Like I mentioned earlier about Denise Richards, 
or Casper Van Dien or Neil Patrick Harris, who is trying to come out of the shadow of being Doogie Howser or even Dina Meyer to a certain extent. You know, these are all young actors and actresses who project that sort of shiny veneer, but not so much that uh, something brilliant that Scott Tobias, uh, a former writer of The Dissolve, now like, you know, a pretty famous movie critic uh, in New York circle or Chicago circles, I should say. He, when talking about Starship Troopers, mentioned that they didn't go with big names. You kind of mentioned that it's a relatively unknown cast. And it's like the relatively unknown cast allows you to sort of coast through the movie without maybe realizing the satirical nature of just the casting of the characters. Whereas if they had cast someone bigger, you know, a bigger teen heartthrob or something like that, I can't think of a good example off the top of my head from the late 90s that would have been a good heartthrob. Maybe someone from the cast of 90210 or something like that that would have maybe tipped people's hand a little bit more to the satirical nature of it when you have this super attractive, well-known person playing the role of, like, Rico or something like that, or even Ibanez or whatever. It's very, very interesting how he tries to, as you said, it's heavy-handed in obvious ways to us as adults who have gone... I mean, like, I'm a history major, so I've I've studied... World War II. I've studied Nazi iconography. I've watched a lot of, uh, like, I've watched Riefenstahl films. I've all these other things that make it pretty aware that they're using Nazi symbology and all these other things. But when you first watch it, you don't see those things. But then later on, you have those revelations. Kind of going back to how the movie beyond that first viewing evolved for me. The first time I really realized that the movie was something different was when Carl, Neil Patrick Harris's character, comes trotting out towards the end of the movie, basically dressed like he's in the SS. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and you're just like, oh my gosh, we're the bad guys. <laughs> and that's the point in the movie, you know? And then, of course, it ends kind of like the last big hurrah of the movie is all the soldiers cheering when Neil Patrick Harris says, it's scared. <laughs> right. Like, it ends the movie with like this thing that we're trying to exterminate. It's scared of us. Hooray for us. It's scared of us. And it's kind of like, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't good. Yeah. What else about the story stands out to you? Oh man, how many how many things don't stand out to me? I <laughs> I don't I don't want to get too much into the characters, but I I enjoy how because of all the things that are going on underneath the surface in this particular movie, I enjoy the relative ease with how which the story goes down and how it very much is a pretty good average story. It's well written and it's it's well done in a way that it has memorable lines that are both haunting and able to get people excited like looking through just looking through people's comments i actually thought it would be interesting to go through the soundtrack and look at people's youtube comments on the soundtrack because i couldn't find it on apple music and mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are like i used to listen to this soundtrack as i was jumping out of my airplane as a paratrooper and like all these things that it's like man there are a lot of people who took this movie on its face value and found like sort of almost like an adrenaline rush or like inspiration from this movie. Kind of like Top Gun did. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like that. You know, like Top Gun's not a movie about how cool it is to be a fighter pilot. It's a romance movie and it's like a buddy movie. It's a drama, but the stuff around it is cool. And so that makes you like it. And I feel very much like it's the same thing with this 
is it's uh, I even funnily enough, the YouTube comments, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of exterminators who said they would listen to the soundtrack before they go to exterminator calls. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> so I, I enjoy the ease with which this movie goes down. It's only later on that you realize there's an intentionality behind that because there's other things at play underneath it. Like this is a this is a pretty decent movie just on its own without like the satirical underpinnings. It's well done, it's well made. The story is really interesting and fun. The interactions between the characters are are good. It's it reminds you of like any sort of teen drama in that sense of like that weird dynamic of not even like a love triangle it's like a love square (laughs) yeah and i enjoyed that you know i can get a little bit more we can get more into the characters in a little bit and some of that other stuff but that's that's what i enjoyed specifically about the story was with the the ease and the pace with which the whole story moves it's a very quick moving movie i really like the story of it too aside from the the satire stuff i thought that again i didn't know what to expect there was maybe like 20 minutes in, and I've said this before with other movies, 20 minutes in, I was like, eh, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll see what Josh has to say about this. But as it got further and further in, I got more invested in the characters, and I wouldn't say there's any like standout Oscar-worthy performances oh, here, no, but it's not, not that kind all. of movie no. at all. It's enjoyable on its own, and then when you understand the second layer of it, where it is the satire and it is making a commentary on maybe not necessarily American culture, but just the culture of war in general as a human race, then it becomes even more interesting. Yeah, because I think that's important to remember is I think it's easy for us to get into this mold of the story, kind of we can layer it over just American ideology and sort of like American history and things like that, but Paul Verhoeven is Dutch. And mm-hmm. as I said before, he lived during Nazi occupation. Like, this is a movie firmly coming from having lived and survived through the European tragedy of Nazi Germany. And so he is speaking on a larger scale of militarism and fascism in general, uh, instead of maybe just an American, even though he was making it for an American audience. That even makes it better for me, is that a Dutch filmmaker is making it in America for Americans, but it's not really technically about Americans, but it kind of is. I enjoy that aspect of it, that it has a a sort of global reach, but also has a little bit more bite for us Americans. Well, let's go ahead and talk about characters a little bit, one at a time. Let's talk about Johnny. So Johnny makes the decision to be a citizen, to go into infantry for maybe the wrong reason. He's following a girl, classic story. (laughs) And you see from the start of the film, even in the classroom setting, how he has his strengths. He, he gives the textbook answer to, uh, what's, how do you pronounce it? Ratchak? Yeah. Ratchak, I think, or something Ratchak. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at it on, on paper, it's like, uh, I don't know what to do about that. Anyways, <laughs> uh, he, he, he's clearly a student who he knows the answers. He, he can give a correct answer, but he, he just hasn't given the, the depth into why he's making this decision. It's just, I'm going for the girl. I'm dating the girl. I like the girl. I want to be with the girl. Mm-hmm. I'm following her. Then when that sort of falls apart on him, he's left reeling and thinking, okay, why did I make this decision? Now things are starting to go wrong. But even at that point in his training, we'd seen him stand out in certain circumstances with combat mm-hmm. and seen him make good decisions that led to good results. Mm-hmm. And so the first half of the film is really about him sort of finding his place and learning that he has his own strengths, even if it's not math to make him a pilot or he's not psychic like his friend Carl to go into intelligence. 
he has his own strengths. And so the film is about him finding his strengths. I like that. And it really is kind of that story of kind of like the the rich kid enters maybe like a, a more blue collar environment, like the white collar going into the blue collar. Like I think Jake Busey's character even says something like that. Like he says, you know, like the rich kid or whatever to him, mm-hmm. you know, even though all of them look like rich kids because they're amazingly well-groomed and beautiful. <laughs> so, which is, I think is part of the fun and kind of the the snark and satire of the film. It's like watching any high school drama where everyone is clearly in their mid-20s and has had a lot of very carefully manicured work on their face and teeth and all that other stuff. Stuff that would not be normal for a high schooler in any normal high school. (laughs) You work with middle schoolers, you know, they're pre-high schoolers. They don't look anything like the mid-25-year-old beautiful people from Riverdale or anything like that. So I look at Rico's character as kind of that Maybe a a story that for a teenage boy like me at the age of 14 or 13 or whenever I first saw this movie, I'm like, I'm kind of Rico a little bit, aren't I? And, (laughs) you know, I think about because even like this movie sort of brought people together back then, too, because I think about like uh, I remember our football team would talk about it a lot and like everyone liked it. And of course, like the quarterback liked it because he was more like Rico because he was tall and handsome like Rico. And so, you know, I, I I think back to that particular film is you can really, he is sort of an empty vessel, almost Luke Skywalker-like character that you can sort of empty yourself into and go along with the ride for and uh, get disappointed when his girlfriend dumps him, but then still hang on to hope that maybe he can punch his way back into her heart. <laughs> Even though I love the part when he does that, because it, it kind of makes it farcical by playing a, a Mazzy Star song or Mazzy Star song over it kind of adding a little bit of silliness to it as like this this sort of dreamy song plays. I just, I love that part of it as well. Rico's first part of his journey is is very interesting. And then it it kind of takes a, a, a bit of a comical turn in the second half for him. Something that I didn't think was comical at the time, and I just thought was him being super tough and everything when things go bad for him. But actually, in retrospect, is kind of like, again, gets back to that satirical nature of his entire character arc. What did you think about his relationship with his parents? That was, I mean, who doesn't maybe have that relationship where you think your parents just don't understand the decisions you're making in your life, but then being in a place where he could come back to them, you kind of assume that like there's this falling out that they have, but it's, it's easily repaired by him just going back home. You know, it sort of creates that moment where he really can't go back at that point in the film. But yeah, I mean, it's basically... It's basically like any story where it's like, you know, parents just don't understand, to to borrow from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which you've been watching <laughs> recently. Yeah. It's interesting that his parents are sort of like the, the, the people in this film who are not encouraging him to go into this system right. that society has established. Whether they're, they're wise to the joke or wise to exactly what it is or just protective of their son, mm-hmm. who knows? But... It's interesting to to have them be the characters, sort of the voices of reason. Like, you don't have to go into this. You don't have to follow the girl. You you can just stay at home and be happy with us because we're your parents and we love you. And so there's that, that, that layer of it. But then there's the layer of it where it's like you're a kid, you make mistakes. Your parents tell you that you're going to make mistakes, but you ignore them. And then you look back at it later in life and, oh, I did make a mistake. Who knew they were right? Yeah, and you would almost kind of think that that's where the arc of the movie is going until, you know, the war, the essentially Buenos Aires, spoiler alert, is completely wiped right. out by a meteor 
from the bugs. You almost assume that there's kind of this reparation that could be had between the two of them and he can come back and do that. And that would be maybe an arc at some point in a different movie or something like that. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I just I think it's such a it's such a normal convention to have him sort of be like, my parents don't understand me. I could just stay and become a lawyer or whatever and not, as you said, chase the girl. And he wants to deny that that's the reason that he's there. But everything basically points to it. He's just unwilling to accept it until he's unable to go back. And he has that moment where he almost washes out. And then you see him ascend in ranks. Yeah. Sort of just by being in the right place at the right time. In a <laughs> Not lot of being dead. <laughs> yeah. Basic, and that, that's, that's, I mean, additional commentary, basically, because he, he quotes Ratchak yeah. when he says, um, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, it's something to the effect of, I will fulfill this position until I die or you find somebody better. You're replaceable. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was speaking of is his character arc of like rising to the ranks essentially only happens because everybody dies that's supposed to be in his place. Like he he never gets promoted necessarily through his own merit, except for maybe the first time when he takes the initiative to take out that bug tank thing with a grenade, which I mean, right. that's basically what it was is the bug is like a tank and he jumped in and threw a grenade in and blew up the tank, except it's a right. giant bug that shoots flames. <laughs> As they do. And he gets he gets uh, promoted to corporal. But the reason that he's promoted to corporal is because the corporal's dead. And his yeah. merit has shown that he could fill that position. And then he just rises through the ranks. Like, he becomes sergeant because the sergeant gets killed by a bug rather horribly. Actually, I get, technically, he gets killed by Ratchek. And then, you know, Ratchek says, I'd expect anyone to do that for me. And then he becomes lieutenant because Ratchek dies in basically being bisected, which is... Something I wanted to make sure I commented on is that Verhoeven loves to bisect people in this movie. It happens quite often. <laughs> yeah, a few times, <laughs> a few beheadings as well. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, very, very often people are getting their, their limbs cut off at the waist. It must have been a really fun effect to do or something. <laughs> <laughs> something in his character that I thought was interesting towards the end of the film is when he, well, I guess it makes I'm trying to like analyze it in my head while I'm mm -hmm. saying it, but it's when Carmen and Xander have crash landed on the planet after their ship has been exploded yeah. by the, the, the tank bugs. And he makes the decision to not chase after her because the communication was cut off and she's probably dead. Mm -hmm. But then like two minutes later, he decides, no, nah, I'm going after her. Yeah. Again, we, we, we learned that's from Carl probably because he's psychic. And earlier in the film, Carl said, I can't do humans yet, but I guess at this point he could. Right. It's been a year. But anyways, I just thought it was an interesting, like, quick turn. Yeah, there's some reason he just knows that she's alive, which taken on its face value is kind of like just one of those shorthands in movies that's kind of like, ah, oh, come on. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's kind of that offhand line. I bet it's a little bit more fleshed out or maybe a little bit more hinted at in the novel itself. Heinlein's mm -hmm. novel, but I've never personally read it. I just kind of always took Verhoeven at face value and was not going to read it. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those things. It's an interesting little twist. And again, one of those things where he goes in and, um, you know, this is that it's the only point of the movie. It's kind of funny. We were just, you shared with me that Honest Trailers decided to come out with the Starship Troopers Honest Trailer literally right before we were talking about this. Right. I haven't yet watched that. I'm looking forward to it later tonight. Well, I'm glad because I, I watched it 
And uh, there's just a funny bit because it's actually a, a quibble I've always had with the movie is that at that point in the movie, it's a necessity for these four people to be able to take out a ton of bugs to be able to move the plot forward in the movie. Whereas before, it seemed like they could shoot endlessly and a bug just would not go down. Right. Whereas in this moment, they're just mowing them down left and right, which I thought was kind of funny. But yeah, you know, he manages to go back for her and, and save her. And it ends up bringing this kind of goofy thing that like teenage movies or uh, coming of age movies have where it's like, let's always stay friends that they did earlier in the movie. And it's like, yeah. we'll probably never see each other again. So it doesn't seem like much. But then, you know, <laughs> at the end, they've seen each other quite a bit and are all reunited while Denise Richards is covered in bug blood and her own blood. Which surprisingly, how how would she not passed out by then? She got like, she got stabbed <laughs> yeah, right above the heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not even step. She was impaled. Yeah. Like it went through her shoulder. <laughs> and she's just like, I'm all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thinking about it, I probably should have made the connection with Carl before he made it for us because I remember thinking when he said that line towards the beginning of the film that he couldn't use his psychic abilities on humans yet. Yeah. I remember just like stowing that away, thinking, Oh, he's gonna be able to do humans by the end. And it just didn't even occur to me until he said it himself at the end. Oh, maybe. I, I can't confirm that it was me. Yeah, he said, that's classified. Yeah, it's basically says, like, <laughs> er, it's classified with, like, a wry grin on his face. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it kind of, it almost plays on this, like, the Nazi obsession with sort of the paranormal and all of these weird aspects of, like, spiritual and, like, paranormal existence and things like that. It almost seems to fit that the Federation's almost obsessed with psychics and finding psychics. That's a good connection. And I found that kind of fascinating because it's like, oh, okay, you know, when you're in the scientific community and doing these kind of things and you've sort of created this this federation, this sort of one race of humans, that you're going to start to be obsessed with the next evolutionary step in humanity. And that's very much a Nazi thing, that they were obsessed with sort of kickstarting evolution. Right. Did you have anything else to say about Johnny? Casper Van Dien does a great job of looking looking handsome and shooting stuff and yelling a lot. <laughs> that, yeah, that jaw. Yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> it's very Kurt Russell-esque in a sense. You know, very, yeah. very square, very firm. <laughs> he does a great job of screaming a lot, too. He's got a great yeah. scream because he has to scream a lot at everybody who dies. <laughs> what about Carmen? What do you think about her? Man, she's all harsh on Johnny, isn't she? She is. It's something so interesting about her character is that she seems incredibly capable and intelligent, but equal parts vacuous at the same time. And I'm not sure if that's Denise Richards and her acting that she's going for in the movie, or if that's a very specific choice from a directorial standpoint, because she very much plays this aloof, capable person. And I found that extremely interesting. She's very career driven, like even more so, like to the point that, you know, she's the one that gets Johnny to join because he's basically wants to impress her and stay with her and things like that. And, you know, she's the one that dumps him because she wants to go career and all these other things. And I found her character to be fascinating, but also kind of a little bit empty in a sense. She's very, very skilled and she's very, very good at what she does, but there's like an aloofness to it. So, there's not really a hardness to her character ever. Right. She's clearly talented and naturally gifted going into the pilot program and ascends pretty quickly there. But her relationship with Johnny, like even from the beginning, it's it's almost like she's not as into it as he is. Mm -hmm. He makes an animation on his tablet or whatever. 
of them about to kiss and then she changes it so that she's blowing the bubble gum in his face yeah. and then she hesitates to say I love you and he says it and he has to sort of coax it out of her. Yeah. It seems like she already had one foot in the relationship being over. She very much comes off as like the the girl that's too good to get in like any sort of teen movie or like a TV show or something like that. The only nice thing is that, you know, she's not necessarily played she's not just like cannon fodder at any point. Right. You know, it would she would seem to be the more obvious candidate to be sort of cannon fodder in the movie or some sort of I mean, she is like a hostage that Johnny goes after at some point. But it's not like one of the main plot devices throughout the entire movie. It's just the final third of the movie. She plays a part in that. She basically is uh, she's reinforcing a lot of stereotypes about women, which is obviously supposed to be satirical in a cert- to a certain extent, but also is very much a character of the times of the basically any time before movies in the somewhat recent future, <laughs> as far as like mainstream films go. I remember writing about The Force Awakens and how Daisy Ridley being the main character was a huge deal, that in this major billion-dollar franchise, the lead character was a woman, and that's a huge deal. And way back then, like most teen movies, or most movies in general, the, the woman was kind of a plot device and not necessarily a character with her own agency. And she does have some agency here, but I feel like I'm not sure if it's just the satirical nature or maybe it's the not being written quite as well, or if it's just the way that Denise Richards plays the character that she's, like I said, capable, but somewhat aloof throughout the entire movie. Going from Carmen into, who do you want to go into next? Xander or Dizzy or Carl? Let's complete the triumvirate and go with Carl. (laughs) Okay. So Carl, I thought it was interesting that because this takes place in the future, the the Wikipedia page says 23rd century. Mm -hmm. Humans have apparently adapted to have psychic abilities, mm-hmm. which is cool. And as you pointed out later in the movie, he has, he's almost definitely wearing like an SS uniform. Yeah. The satire there is not subtle even whatsoever, but he has that speech there or that, that line where he basically says, yeah, we sent you in knowing it was probably a trap so that we could find out more information. Right. Thank you for your service. You're probably going to do it again tomorrow. Thank you again. But that's what sort of struck me as strange about that final scene where they're like, yeah, we're always friends. When he basically (laughs) admitted the day before or whatever, that I I sent my friends in to sacrifice themselves because that's what we do. We, We sacrifice each other for the sake of finding out information so that we can continue to sacrifice each other. Yeah. And that that's kind of what makes it like another point of the sort of satirical nature of just the militarization and sort of the Nazi ideals where it's like, yeah, that's just what you do. If this were like had more of an American feel to the military, he'd have been, you know, Rico would have been like, you jerk and like punched him in the face and they would have had to pull him <laughs> apart. And he would have been like, he's like, I'm going to court martial you. And he's like, I'm going to expose everything you did. And that would be, you know, the thrust of the movie. Like, you can't handle the truth and all that stuff. Whereas this is very much like they all seem to be like, this is our duty. This is who we are. Yeah, it's very plain faced. Yes. It's not a secret. No. It's just... Okay, you're still our friend. You're you're doing your job and I'll continue to do mine, which is to throw myself at bugs. Exactly. It's like the only time you really get that there's any animosity between anybody and is when Rico says that, you know, the what's the name of like the the fleet service? He says like fleet flies and the, you know, uh, ground troops die. I can't remember what the line is that he says. It's like he says it with so much scorn. And it's really the only time in the movie where it felt like something where anyone would have anything against the operations that they're doing. 
or except maybe the line where the fleet commander, uh, Ibanez's commander, is like someone made a huge mistake. But that's more of just like they underestimated the bugs. Not really about like, uh oh, the chain of command is corrupt or something like that. There wasn't any exposure of that kind. Yeah. Yeah, it was we're in a different movie. That would be a significant sequence is sort of the drama between these different forces, the intelligence and the ground troops and things like that. But this is just a, you know, at that point, it's kind of just like, all right, this is our duty. We're getting thrown into the meat grinder, as the recruiter says to them. Fresh meat for the grinder. And then you see that his level of sacrifice where he's missing an arm and has a prosthetic and then has both of his legs gone. Yeah, he says mobile infantry made me the man I am today. And then it cuts to a shot of like all of his cybernetic limbs or prosthetic limbs. Yeah, less of a man than he was before. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Literally speaking, there's less of him. Right. (laughs) Anything else about Carl, I suppose? I think that pretty much sums him up for the most part. I just love that Neil Patrick Harris seems to play his part perfectly as sort of the it's almost like the meta knowing of what this movie is really about, plus being the intelligence officer of the movie. He's pretty great in it. And, you know, this is before we kind of knew him more in in some different roles than just, you know, Doogie Howser. So it felt really great. It reminds me that Neil Patrick Harris really is uh, a pretty great smirking actor. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about Dizzy next, I suppose. Well, Diz probably in if they were ever to do, because there's always been the bandied about doing a Starship Troopers reboot, which Paul Verhoeven is adamantly against. If they actually wanted to make it either not satirical, but still make it empowering, they would make like Diz the main character or something. Because basically, right. she probably should be in charge instead of Rico. Because she seems way more capable and tough than either of them. Yeah, and she even like, says a couple things to Rico to get him to act. That's I don't remember exactly the scenario, but I remember her giving direction to him and him acting on it. Yeah, so, I mean, she seems as capable, if not more capable, and even more tough than any of them. And even more self-assured. Like, she's there for a particular reason. Like, you know, she doesn't explain the reason that she's there. They kind of leave that hanging in the air why she signed up. But it seems like more of she actually wants to succeed and make it a career and make something of herself in the uh, mobile infantry. And so I actually, I mean, I actually like Dina Meyer's portrayal of the character. I feel like maybe she was given a little bit of short shrift. She could have been a little bit more in the, in the limelight in this particular movie, if it had been going for more of a straight up, let's, you know, not satirical sort of movie. I would imagine if they would, like I said, a more earnest movie that actually has something to say and gives credit to the characters would put Diz in the forefront. I was reading earlier that in the test screenings of this movie, before it was officially released, there were some different changes that were made, a few small minor ones. Oh, okay. It says originally it was clear that Carmen was torn between Rico and Xander. I thought it was pretty clear anyways, but uh, test audiences felt that women couldn't love two men at the same time. and so they cut scenes that sort of related to that a little bit more or made it a little bit more clear. And then they felt it was immoral for Carmen to choose a career instead of being, I'm almost basically just reading the Wikipedia page just to be clear in case anybody wants to call me out (laughs) Uh, ahead of being loyal to Rico Mm. to the extent that many commented that Carmen should have been the one to die instead of Dizzy. And the producer said that 
it, it may have been a bad commercial decision to not change the film mm-hmm. to for, for Carmen to die instead. But they did cut a scene after Xander's death where Carmen and Rico kiss. Apparently audiences believed it made the, the betrayal even more immoral of Carmen to Rico. Interesting. So I just thought that was interesting considering Dizzy's Dizzy didn't go here necessarily for the same reason that Rico did, where Rico was definitely chasing a girl. Dizzy sort of just happens to be along for the ride. Maybe she transfers to his unit or something. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's very clear that she is there for Rico, but she's there and she's open to Rico. And so she's not necessarily actively pursuing him the whole film, but when it does happen, it's just like, a, oh yeah, finally, this is something I've been wanting for a long time. And then that makes the tragedy of her death the next day. Yeah all the worse. Yeah. Well, and I just think like, I feel like if this movie didn't have a satirical layer, I would hate Dizzy's character and the way she was written because like, you know, her last lines, at least I got to have you is just so terrible, (laughs) but it's supposed to be satirical in the sense like, Oh, all I got to live for was being with you once. Well, I'll I'll give credit to it. The way she delivers that line, it's not like this over romantic, my final peaceful dying words at least i got to have you one last time she's like choking up blood. <laughs> yes like it's it's a it's a violent goodbye yeah, it's her death rattle <laughs> yeah so i mean in that way it it feels authentic yeah. i guess you could say it's like th- this is the brutality this is the reality of this this is how things go down sometimes mm-hmm. and coming from a filmmaker like verhoven where you know he's gonna make a movie that he doesn't use he doesn't use sexuality and he doesn't use romantic entanglements in his movies just to, I mean, he uses them for shock value, certainly, <laughs> but he doesn't use them in a way that's not carefully done to almost deconstruct the reasons why we have relationships and why there's a shallowness to like Dizzy and Rico's relationship or movies. Like I think of Black Book, which would come later, where basically the main character is a woman who uses her sexuality to fight fascism. And I feel like that's a natural evolution of like his filmmaking and Starship Troopers is kind of like the satirical tipping point for him of what would come after that. Because you think about, I would say that some of his movies are just purely for shock value. Like I think of Showgirls, which is just comical amounts of nudity. And it's just, I can't not read that line as just being awful if it doesn't have a satirical element to it. And it's it's not meant to be almost like a shot taken at maybe movies that make either don't directly say that or sort of imply that in their male lead character, sort of the woman basically exists to swoon over him. Since you mentioned the nudity in this movie, I just wanted to say something else that I read. Apparently, the cast only agreed to do the the (laughs) locker scene nude if he directed it nude, and so he did. He did. Well, it was him and his cinematographer, or his. And I guess he what he said is, "My cinematographer grew up in a nudist colony, and I don't care about taking my clothes off." So we did it. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty fantastic. Oh, man. So anyways, if this had been a different movie, I would have hated Dizzy's character. But as this movie the way it is, she probably is kind of the coolest character in the movie, in my opinion. She kind of kicks a lot of butt. She does. That leaves Xander of like the sort of main group of young people entering into this world. He's a foil. He's a foil. (laughs) He's the Flash Thompson. Yeah. Um, So he he's he's the Biff Tannen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could just let's just name other <laughs> antagonists. Uh, good stuff. He's the Doctor Evazon. 
<laughs> the, the moment that stood out for Xander for me was when he and Carmen made the rescue on Planet P. They make the landing while everybody's climbing in and he grabs a gun. And it's the first time we've seen him with a gun because, hey, he's a pirate. Right. He shouldn't have to shoot. He's not infantry. And he's like in the thick of it. And he says, holy crap, this is what we're sending our people into. There's no like realization moment after that. There's not like a speech he has. Uh, but you see how he's been sort of antagonistic towards Rico this whole time. And then immediately after that realization that, oh, wow, this is, this is the world that these people are fighting in. And he sees that Rico is actually alive when they previously thought he was dead because of the, the false killed in action report. And so instead of maybe keeping it a secret or playing it off or trying to do something about it, he, he goes back up to the cockpit and he says, hey, Carmen, you should know your buddy Rico is back there. Right. And it, it, to me, that was him saying, okay, Rico isn't just like this vacuous person who, who isn't capable of things. He who's, who's doing a fake job. Mm. He had that line earlier in the film. I don't remember exactly what that was either, but he was very dismissive mm. of Rico as an infantry person. Yeah. And that was him that, that moment on planet P was him realizing, okay, he's going through some serious stuff. Maybe I get, better give him a break. Right. Yeah, and that actually kind of makes you like Xander's character. I can imagine that those scenes would be very dissonant if you said, like, those test screenings, if they still had those scenes in, where it was much more obvious that, that Carmen was torn and actually had feelings for Xander, that we would actually hate him too much to actually like him and give him any credit, mm -hmm. and he would just still be seen as, like, a, a nemesis to our main character. But instead here, it like you said, it's almost like he just becomes a part of this group of our main characters that are essentially trying to survive. And he has that sacrifice scene, yeah. he, he, the s sacrificial play with the brain mm -hmm. bug. He passes over the knife to Carmen and he gets the very dramatic death scene, which I'm sure was a lot of fun for him to film. <laughs> yeah. But he, he makes a sacrifice play so that Carmen can live, which is great. Yeah. So we end up kind of respecting his character because he dies. <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> Along with a lot of other characters in the movie. A whole lot of characters. Did, are there any of those other characters you wanted to talk about? I think the only one that I found that was kind of interesting, I really wanted to address like Zim. I mean, just a, uh, you know, a hat tip to Dean Norris and um, Michael Ironside as these great sort of uh, balding, older, <laughs> higher ups in the movie. Yeah, I'm just surprised James Tolkien didn't make it into this one with the other <laughs> bold, bald, bald white guys. Nice. <laughs> yeah it would have uh oh I'm, I'm trying to think of the the actor on breaking bad who is bald and has the goatee jonathan banks yeah that's it yeah there's another another bald scary guy that would have been great in this movie <laughs> uh, maybe he's a little bit too scary <laughs> maybe uh, <laughs> yeah so like clancy brown's character is zim i just i really i really like him as the drill sergeant that actually kind of likes his troops he he seems to actually care about the troopers, about Rico, about all those other things. And I like his uh, you know, ripping up of Rico's uh, washout form. And he's like, is that your signature? And then uh, Dean Norris turns away so he can't see what he's doing. And he says, like, doesn't look like it to me and rips it up. And he says, welcome back, Private. And at the end of the movie, when I first saw this movie, I was like, yeah, Zim, he got him. He got the bug. It's so great. It's just a it's one of the few moments in there where even after you've kind of read the movie the way that it's intended to be read, you still have to cheer for Zim's character getting a chance to fight because uh, he wanted it so badly at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, he even took the demotion. Right. Yeah, and he was a private while Rico's a lieutenant. 
So it's just kind of like an, an interesting, you know, he's battle promoted and he had to take a battle demotion to be able to fight, but his name will be remembered. And I, I like Clancy Brown a lot. So I just wanted to be able to bring up Clancy Brown. Yeah. I wanted to mention uh Ratchak one more time mm-hmm. because while you were talking about Zim, it occurred to me that, you know, Ratchak was his teacher at the beginning of the film and surprise later in the film, he's the, what's his rank? Lieutenant. lieutenant. Yeah. He's the lieutenant that he joins the battalion of or whatever. And he has this reputation with his group, with the rough, rough roughnecks, roughnecks. Yeah. That's it is. I almost wanted to say rough riders, but I knew that wasn't right. The roughnecks where everybody is like, man, he's the best. He saved my life. Oh, he saved my life too. Oh, he saved my life too. And to me, that, that sort of speaks to me as a teacher a little bit, mm. you know, because he's a teacher in the classroom and then he goes and he's sort of a teacher on the field and he gives a couple of pieces, a couple of nuggets of information mm-hmm. or uh, advice to Rico uh, about girls, about this, about that. But he's looking out for his men. And yeah, maybe that means ending their suffering, but maybe that's a, a weird connection to make. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, as a teacher, you look out for your own. Yeah. I just, I like how his reveal, there's, this movie's about some pretty great reveals. Like I mentioned the Neil Patrick Harris one, or there's the one at the end where it's like all those young kids are recruited mm-hmm. into the Roughnecks and Rico kind of offhandedly says like, we're the old, we're the old guys now. And it's yeah. like, oh no, they're getting younger. Just like the Nazis did when they had to recruit 15 and 16 year olds to fight in their army when their troops were being decimated um, and no one wanted to fight for them anymore. But I love the reveal of him because it it harkens back to because his when he argues with his dad, Rico argues and you know he says like uh, his dad says uh, something about Ratchek being like a military recruiter in the school and Rico says it's not like that and it's actually probably is <laughs> you know yeah as it turns out <laughs> yeah exactly well because at one point he goes and he talks at the final dance at the end of the year dance he goes and talks to a bunch of guys in military uniform so that kind of tips the hand that he probably was basically a military recruiter in the in the high school or school or whatever i don't know how old i mean i'm assuming these guys are all supposed to be teenagers and like high schoolers were there any other characters you wanted to talk about no, I don't think so. I think I even got to mention some of the cameos, like uh, Blanche Devereaux from Golden Girls being the... Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I don't think so. I think we've mentioned pretty much all of the characters that we are, yeah, that we can expand upon at least a little bit. Well, let's talk about the music just a little bit. I don't have a whole lot to say here. I just have a few clips that I wanted to play. As you would expect, this score is very reminiscent of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly. Uh, It also, because it is a military film, it has a very traditional kind of march as its main theme. Mm -hmm. So here's that main march. It's nice and playful. This kind of reminds me a little bit of the March from 1941 by John Williams. Oh, sure. Because that's that's playful, too, and that's kind of a comedy. Not that this is a comedy. That's what it reminds me of there. And then the, the more Star Trek-y kind of stuff is the stuff that plays during Iba- Ibanez, Ibanez yeah. her first flight.
This is from the track called Carmen's Test Flight. It reminds me of Star Trek whenever the uh, Enterprise might be leaving the dock. Like it's that oh, kind of yeah. scene. Oh, mm yeah. -hmm. Anyways, I'm not going to play this whole thing because it's kind of long. And then the only other clip I had to play is the it's it's called the Roughnecks. So it's it's their main theme song. And so it's uh, a little bit more militaristic and a little bit darker. Not so much Star Trek, more just like action music here. It definitely gives off the the feeling of troops getting ready for battle. Like it's not literally happening here, but the the symbol crashes in the background almost reminds me of like in the Lord of the Rings where they're in the 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 orcs are in the pit and they're hammering their armor pieces like that. It's like that kind of getting ready for the fight that's uh, at hand yeah. that that it reminds me of. So that's all I had to really say about the music. I didn't have a whole lot to say. Did you have anything you wanted to say? It's really hard with that first piece of music to not start trying to sound like the uh, voiceover guy. And be like, the Federation yeah. <laughs> is hard at work recruiting you to join. Will you join? Would you like to know more? Right. <laughs> Which is just a great iconic line. I think it's like up there with RoboCop and the I'd buy that for a dollar is sort of like the offhanded line that just sticks around. It's like, would you like to know more? Let's talk about the final section here, which is impact. The, the things that we take away, the things that maybe this, this movie has to say beyond just a story. We, we talked a lot about the, non, the, the satire along the way, and we can linger on a couple more of those things. But uh, as far as like non-satire goes, there's lessons about like the freedom of choice to, to make up your own mind, to, to sacrifice should you have that desire. Johnny chooses to go into service despite his parents' wishes. He has the right to do that as a person with <laughs> a free will. Mm -hmm. There's Xander, Watkins, and Rashak, Ratchak, I, I, I think I've pronounced it differently every time, <laughs> uh, but they, they all have the opportunity to sacrifice themselves for what they view is the, the greater good to defeat the bugs. And each of those people are sacrificing themselves for people that they find meaningful. Xander sacrifices himself for Carmen. Mm -hmm. Watkins sacrifices himself for his, his friends who are there with him. Mm -hmm. He's got Johnny and Ace, Ace yeah. and Carmen there with him. And so he makes that sacrifice. He says, go on without me. I will hold him off. I'll blow, I'll detonate the bomb. You just guys, you guys get away from the blast radius. Mm -hmm. And then you have Ratchak, who maybe isn't dying for a specific person, but he is dying protecting his troops. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a powerful message there. Dying for people that you care about or something that you feel is right. And then the other one that really stands out to me as far as non-satire goes is teamwork versus working on your own. The people who die first in this movie, mm -hmm. like when we first get into outer space and first get into the, the fight scenes, the people who die first are the ones who split off from the group. Mm -hmm. There's one who he just gets really into the killing of everything and he runs off and he's like throwing his gun around and yip he look at look at me, look at me killing all of you. He dies pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And we see that a couple other times, people who split off from the group, they end up dying. And so the people who stick together have a greater chance of surviving. The one notable exception to that is when he takes out that big flamethrowing bug. He kind of right. goes off on his own to do that as sort of a standout thing. But, you know, I think of like uh, Diz, Dizzy and Rico working together to win that uh, training exercise where they kind of do the football play, 
which I, again <laughs> yeah. is kind of like a, a funny cliche of yeah, it movies is. <laughs> to do like the uh, their football play for them to be able to win. But it is but it is an example of teamwork and them working together, <laughs> you know, except this time, you know, he's he's not just throwing the ball Diz. Again, it's this example of teamwork to a certain extent. Of course, Rico's the one who who obtains the benefits from it. But like you said before, it's not him who came up with the idea or executed it. It's Diz who did. He just got the right. credit for it, which I thought was kind of funny. Essentially, them working together as a team, I think of the, when they go to that outpost, is that moment of being able to work together as a team, even though it comes at a great cost to themselves. Um, and ultimately, like we said, it's a mission with low survival probability. It's really hard to speak earnestly about the messages that are within the movie when you know that it's being played up for a certain reason. I mean, that's true. <laughs> that does get into the satire of all of it. As I said, the quote that was from Verhoeven, just sort of the theme of the movie, was war makes fascists of us, of us all. Mm. Uh, you've got forcing civilians into a choice to undergo service in order to gain privileges like voting. And if you're not smart enough to go into being a pilot or lucky enough to be psychic to go into intelligence, you're, you're relegated to infantry where the chances of you dying are pretty high. But hey, if you survive, you get to come back and vote. Right. Like there's the one woman that says that she wants to have babies and it's easier to get a kind of like almost like the China's one child policy, you know, where right. she almost says that it, it makes it easier for you to get. I think she says like a permit or something like that to have a kid. I think she said a license. Yeah, yeah, or a license. And you notice that most of the kids, most of the teenagers in the movie don't have siblings. Like Rico doesn't have a sibling. Carmen only mentions her father. She doesn't mention any siblings or a mother. And I think that I think that's explicit in the novel that most of them are just single children. And mm -hmm. I mean, that might be some of the tension of Rico going into the service is that he's the only one who can keep their family legacy going because he's the only child, which I think is kind of interesting. But yeah, that really plays on on that idea of uh, militarization and sort of these veiled Nazi references make the movie quite chilling in that effect. And it, it really does like war and conflict and aggression turn us into people who are willing to do pretty terrible things in the name of survival and conquest. And then you have just the, the existence of the propaganda in itself. Right. Uh, I already mentioned the the news anchor getting eaten and the cameraman's dedication to continue filming. Right. And then the fact that they used that footage mm -hmm. and then You've got the the willingness of people to go to war to die in this ongoing cycle of violence and death and sacrifice. I already mentioned the the quote from Rashak that Johnny referenced. He said about being killed or finding someone better for the position. Mm -hmm. They're all expendable. They're all replaceable. Yeah. And then after the the first sort of the trap or the first massacre of people that we see, there's the newscast debate that we witness. Right. And there's the, the people that are arguing against each other. And one guy says, I, I find the idea of a bug that thinks offensive. Like it's, it's an offensive notion that the enemy could be as or more intelligent than we are. Right. Or just the, the fact that he, he's arguing against anything that challenges his beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, like, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's prevalent. Like that, that's something that we experience. We have people today who argue against things because it challenges what they, they thought to be true or whatever example you want to offer up there, you know, and it really does play up as the enemy as just merely a specimen. You know, it shows the 
the bug being in a cage and killing a cow. There's the one where Carl's character shoots one and like tells him how to kill a bug. There's the part at the end of the movie when they show the censored probe going into the brain bug and just very much playing it up. All of these sort of scientists working on this, it, it de, I guess debugifies or dehumanizes or, <laughs> or makes not sentient the bugs. It's really interesting at different points in the movie how, or, or like after the Buenos Aires tragedy, when that guy looks at the camera and says, the only, the only good bug is a dead bug, you know, and everyone's doing their part and it shows a bunch of kids stomping out bugs and stuff like that. Um, yeah. It's very much this, this very well-oiled propaganda machine that, that is styled after Nazi propaganda films from the Nazi era, where they would churn out lots of different films, where they would essentially shift the narrative I was reading about some of those films that that Verhoeven used, and he talked about how the Nazis would literally, the German filmmakers, would essentially twist the narrative. Like there was one, I forget what the name of the movie was, where they essentially made it that Poland invaded Germany first. Very, very interesting stuff. But, you know, essentially it shifts the narrative and dehumanizes the enemy. And certainly that this movie does that because they're just bugs. How could they be intelligent? Well, that last point you made a moment ago about them invading first, there's a whole question of how this came to light. Uh, It doesn't make it explicit in the movie. I'm assuming it makes it explicit in the book. But the again, the summary on Wikipedia at least says that the reason these things started happening, these bugs came into our common knowledge was because humans were colonizing new planets. Right. And when I went back and I watched that opening propaganda video... The, the narrator says something to the effect of, oh, we need to make sure that we eliminate this planet now, which is on the other side of our galaxy. <laughs> right. Like, it, it's not even anywhere close. They didn't pose a threat until we started encroaching on their territory. Mm-hmm. And so if they just left them alone, then they probably, it probably wouldn't be an issue. Well, right. And the fact that Buenos Aires was open to exposure, again, in that opening propaganda film, they say our, our planet safety warfare is a lot better than it used to be. And the, it shows them exploding an asteroid or one of those meteors that's coming for Earth. Mm-hmm. But because in the movie they were off getting ready to invade this planet right. that that meteor was able to get past and to decimate buenos aires mm-hmm. and so just the, the fact that they're the humans here are attacking the bugs rather than being on the defensive or just they fall into a trap because they they were so aggressive yeah and i think even that reporter that eventually dies on clendathu he says something to the fact that some people are saying that the only reason that that asteroid happened is because we were encroaching on their territory. And then Rico's response is, I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say, kill them all. And yeah. that's, I mean, that's essentially a good microcosm of the film is like, regardless of, it doesn't matter. Again, war makes fascists of us all. Kill them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reg- regardless right. of whether their reasons were just or unjust or whether ours are unjust or just, just kill them all. They killed me, you know, like an eye for an eye. Yeah, because they are out there, we must destroy them. Right, exactly. And so, I mean, very, very much the the message of the movie becomes very chilling um, and timely. I know I mentioned Scott Tobias earlier, and he had written something about essentially, which, you know, it can only go so far, but he essentially, this movie came out in 97, and then 9-11 happened four years later. And he says that very much the thinking of 9-11 lined up with the thinking of Starship Troopers. You know, there's an inciting incident which led to sort of a no-holds-barred approach to attacking the enemy and dehumanizing them. And we 
didn't let up and some would argue we still haven't let up and it's led to a lot of animosity in other parts of the world towards our country as a result of that. Well, are there any other sum ups or things that you wanted to say before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I don't I don't think we want to get lost in the weeds of trying to sort of take the message <laughs> of the movie and interpreting it to current, you know, modern day. I think that could be troublesome because it is a product of its time. And I think that yeah. honestly it, it is a it's less of a direct message and more of a, a satirical warning from somebody who experienced the height of fascism and militarization in his own country when he was small and had to deal with the fallout of all of that. So I think it it can provide a good moral lesson as to, uh, of course, from a satirical standpoint of maybe some of the warning signs <laughs> of those kind of things. <laughs> but I don't think there's time for us to, to necessarily wade in that. It's, it's kind of difficult because of how tumultuous our, our current political situation is in our world. It would be tough to, right. to graft that onto Starship Troopers or vice versa. So no, I think that'll about do us, unless we want to talk for another hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think yeah, we're good yeah. uh, to, to end on something a little bit more lighthearted. Sure. I, I just wanted to point out that I love that Harvard still exists in the yes. world. There's the one person who said, oh, I made it into Harvard. I, th- I think it's a person who's wanting kids. I made it into Harvard, but it's so much easier to <laughs> get a child yes. if I have or get a license. Yeah. 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 I think I, I, yeah, I think so, it says it's too expensive. Yeah. Because I mean, considering at this point, like in our history now, Harvard is what, 400 years yeah. old? And that would make it 200 plus years older than that, even. <laughs> it's pretty it's great. an institution, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think that wraps up the 94th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Josh, for uh, coming onto the show Absolutely. and int- introducing me to a new movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad, to, I'm glad you can watch this for the first time. I'm glad that you're old. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you're watching this now as an adult, because I feel like you have <laughs> a good, fresh-eyed perspective of its satire. Whereas when I was a 14-year-old boy, I did not. I just thought it was cool to watch (laughs) humans shoot bugs and see blood everywhere. Right. (laughs) Contact for the show. You can find us facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go over to Apple Podcasts and drop a rating and review. Hit that subscribe button. It's free. And it's really (laughs) helpful to helping us get exposed to new listeners. If you have any feedback or ideas you'd like to send directly to me, you can email thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Josh, where can people find you on the internet? Okay. Well, on uh, Twitter, I'm at hey, it's that Josh. Uh, same thing across all platforms. Uh, you can, that's my sort of going handle for all social media is hey, it's that Josh. So you can find me there, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of fun stuff. I write for Sports Obsessive and Real World Theology as well as podcasting for Home One Radio, Real World Theology, and the podcast I do with my wife, the Tone It Down podcast. And I did, I forgot to mention earlier that this is, since I don't even know if you're going to, I think you said you were going to cut your project that you're working on. I don't know, you might even have to cut yeah. the fact that I mentioned that you're working on a project. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I do also have, you can find it at the Real World site. I'm working on a podcast called Separation of Church and Film, uh, which is an exploration of controversial films within church culture spanning decades and a century. Starting, so basically what it is, is if any of you are familiar with uh, You Must Remember This, which is a podcast about Hollywood history, it's mm-hmm. similar in that sense where it's a five, six, or seven part episode 
essentially a narrative podcast talking about a particularly controversial movie within the history of Christianity in America. So I don't really have any more details than that because my access to the library has been insanely limited over this COVID-19 pandemic. So I haven't had quite the access that I would need to get the things that I would need to have secondary and tertiary resources to make sure I am well-versed in what I'm talking about. But uh, it is forthcoming at some point. Okay, well, keep an eye out for that. Keep an eye out for new real-world episodes, real-world theology mm-hmm. episodes, and Home One Radio. I'm glad that's back. Yeah, and the second we get more music, you're on. Excellent. I I still need to see uh, The Mandalorian. Oh, yes. Did you see that the, the vinyl set yes. that's coming out? We should definitely cool. still talk The Mandalorian music. I don't care when yeah. we do that. I really want to hear your opinions on it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I will definitely watch season one at least before season two comes oh, out because okay, right now it's still set for October. Yes. So we'll see. Very exciting. Thanks, Chad. Well, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter, the C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Uh, you can also find my other podcast, which again has since ended, but it's called An American Workplace. We talked about every episode of NBC's The Office, episode by episode, and you can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And the show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's it. Thank you so much once again, Josh. It's been fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chad. I'm glad we finally managed to make this happen. Yes, and hopefully it won't be another (laughs) two or three years of trying to schedule (laughs) it uh, to get you back on again. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies. also directed RoboCop, Toto Recall. Oh my goodness, I'm tripping all over my words.